Well, praise God. Are you ready for the word? Very good. Take your Bibles out, if you would. Please turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. You'll find that about halfway through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first section of the Bible. Of course, the New Testament is the last section. And about halfway through the first half of your Bible, you'll find Ezekiel. We're going to be in chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley. And it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, they were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And I will put sin you on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinew and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over. But there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man. These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am, that I the Lord have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Father, as we look at your word this morning, God, I pray that you would not only show us what you are intending and what you have intended for the nation of Israel, but God, I pray this morning that you would also show us from this passage, God, what you intend for each and every one of us, God. Not only us, but Lord, the people with whom we have to do. And God, that as we operate in your spirit, God, and we hear your voice, God, and we are led by you and we obey your command, God, may we know today. That the things that you did in this vision with Ezekiel, you will still do today. We believe this, God. We accept it as your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. 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 Man, isn't that an exciting passage of Scripture? I know you're sitting there saying, I can't wait to see where he's going with this. 
But first, I've got to tell you, I've got to give you an update on the news about Marcel. Marcel had shingles. I know you're sad to hear that. Now, if you don't know who Marcel is, Marcel Ledbetter, he's one of the Ledbetter boys. There's Arnell, Unell, W.L. Odell, Marcel, Clovis, Eugene, and Claude. And, of course, Uncle Percy and Aunt Bet. Well, uh, well, Marcel went to the doctor, and he walks into the front office there, and this lady is sitting behind the counter. She said, may I help you? He said, I've got shingles. So she handed him a clipboard and said, well, sit down over there and fill out this form. So he sits down with his little clipboard, and he fills out the form. He gets up and gives it back to her. She said, well, have a seat. Somebody will be with you in just a minute, Mr. Ledbetter. So a few minutes, the lady came out. She said, Marcel Ledbetter. So he got up to go and see what she wanted. She said, follow me. So he followed her down through there, and she said, what do you have? He said, I've got shingles. So she said, well, step up on this scale. So he stepped up on the scale, and she weighed him, and she measured him, and then said, follow me, and she took him back to a little room. said, have a seat. Somebody will be with you in a minute. So he sits down in the little room there, and about 30 minutes later, door opened up, and this other lady came in. She said, what do you have? He said, I've got shingles. So she looked in his ears, she looked up his nose, she stuck a popsicle stick in his mouth and told him to say, ah. She took blood, took his temperature, and listened to his heartbeat. Then she handed him a gown, said, take your clothes off and put this gown on. And have a seat, and the doctor will be with you in just a minute. So he took his clothes off, he put the gown on, he sat down again. And about 30 minutes later, the door opened and the doctor walked in. The doctor says, well, Mr. Ledbetter, I see you have shingles. He said, well, where are they, and how long have you had them? He said, well, I've had them for about two hours now, and they're on the truck. Where do you want <laughs> So I came to a conclusion when I heard that story. I think we ought to put Marcel Ledbetter in charge of the health plan that they're trying to pass in D.C., the affordable care, because I figured out if you want a free checkup, just get you a pickup truck and put some shingles on it and go to the doctor's office. It's real easy to misdiagnose something, isn't it? And uh, certainly Marcel was mis misdiagnosed when uh, he was just trying to deliver some shingles. And, of course, he went to and got, hey, that's a free checkup, man. So we, we shouldn't just presume to know something about somebody when we really don't know what's going on with people. Because a lot of times we can measure somebody up and we can, the Bible calls it judging people. And sometimes we can judge people, sometimes we're supposed to judge people, but according to the Word, not according to our opinion. Because we can see people and we have no idea what's going on in their life, but boy, we can measure them up and size them up just like that. And more times than not, when you do that, you're going to misdiagnose that person. Even when we know what's going on in their life, sometimes we misdiagnose people. Because sometimes we can look at people, and I mean they can be a messed up person. And our diagnosis would be, there's no hope for this person. I worked with a guy like that. His name was Bones, Duke Power. He was building the McGuire Nuclear Power Station. He was a pipe welder. I was a pipe fitter, and sometimes they would hook me up with Bones, and he was a scary person. Bones was a mean man. And back in those days now, I mean, there was some crazy people around, and they may still be. I'm just not in those circles anymore. He carried a pocket knife in each pocket, and he could come out of it and open it just like that, and he would cut you with it. 
He had cut people with it. He was in a bar one night. He reached his pocket. And a guy grabbed his hand and said, What you going to do now, you blankety blank? He come out of the other pocket and stuck a knife through his throat and said, I'm going to cut your throat. And I mean, that's the way Bones was. Well, he went to his mother's funeral. And he'd, he'd never been to church all of his life. Drink liquor like it was water. Just a mean man. And he, he said there was a white cross somebody put on his mama's grave. And he said he couldn't get that thing out of his mind. And he had a dream, and he saw that white cross coming at him like that. And he said all of a sudden the end of it turned like that, and it started just jabbing in his face. And said it scared him to death. He got up, and he didn't know what was going on. Well, through that process and a series of events I won't go into, bones came to Jesus Christ. And he said his wife knew that he got saved when she came in and he was pouring his liquor down the drain in the kitchen sink. Because she said he wouldn't pour out a drop of liquor and he would beat you up if you spilled one. And so Bones got saved and it took him for a while before his mouth got saved, you understand. Because I worked with him and he, he loved the Lord, but he just, it, it, folks, it takes a while. Amen. We shouldn't be so quick to judge people. You know, but if I'd have looked at Bones, I would have, I would have misdiagnosed him. I would have said, this is a person, there's no hope, but this person will never come to Christ. You know some people like that. Come on. Right? Don't we misdiagnose people sometimes? This person will never come to Christ. Well, you can't know those things. We look at them and the chances of them coming to Jesus is about as, as real as a valley of bones becoming a living army in our mind. Now, at the time of, of Ezekiel, when he had this vision, the nation of Israel looked like it had absolutely no hope. You have to understand, because they had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And the name Ezekiel actually means God strengthened. So God strengthened Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. 597 years before Christ, the Babylonians came in and took them captive. Now here you are, you're a slave, you're in a foreign nation, your nation has completely been dissolved... And all hope of ever being a nation again is completely lost. And look at what he said in verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost. And we ourselves are cut off. They even misdiagnose themselves. A lot of people feel like there's no hope for me. I've seen people, they feel like they're too big of a sinner for God to save them. Folks, there are no super sinners. We're all just sinners saved by the grace of God. Well, the world is full of people that think just like that. They think they have no hope. But what is worse is when Christians think of people in that same way. When we see people and we think there's no hope for them, that person will never come to Christ. We need to be like Ezekiel when he looked at him and says, what do you see? He said, well, I see a valley of dead bones. Well, preach to those bones. He preached to him. He said, what do you see now? He said, I see a bunch of dead folks. <laughs> he said, well, preach and pray and intercede for them that God will put breath into them. Verse 10, he said, so prophesy as he commanded. And breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. Now, let me ask you a question. Was it Ezekiel's idea to raise a valley of dead bones? Or was it God's idea? It was God's idea. Folks, God is willing to save anyone. It's His idea. 
In fact, he came to seek and save that which is lost. God is the giver of life. And God can give life to anyone. Any dead bone can live. And sometimes when you see that person you think God can never reach, he may have a greater calling on his life than you do. People you never thought would come to the Lord. And I believe that God is here today to give you and I hope that God can do these great things. Ezekiel would not see this come to pass because it would be 2,500 years before that prophecy would be fulfilled. But on May the 14th, 1948, Israel became a political power once again. And that prophecy came to pass. What seemed like a valley of dry, dusty, dead bones is now a living nation. And during the millennium, they're going to be the most powerful nation on earth. A spiritual power. So God will give life to people that you don't think it's even possible. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about a man in history. This is one of my favorite evangelists that lived in in modern-day biblical history. Um, I guess out of all of the evangelists that's lived, Charles Grandison Finney would have to be my all-time favorite. I love the story about this man. He, you probably know some of the guys like John uh, Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Well, Charles Finney was in that group. He was one of the greatest evangelists in church history. He lived from 1792 to 1875. So this was just right after the Revolutionary War. He was raised in upstate New York, which was a wilderness then we don't think of upstate New York as a wilderness, but back then that's what it was. It was the frontier. And he was raised by a Revolutionary War veteran. And his father, unlike most of the veterans of the Revolutionary War, was an atheist. He was a humanist. And he was very antagonistic against any kind of Christian faith. He would not allow a Bible to come to his home. He wouldn't allow you to talk about God in his home. And this is who raised Charles Finney. In 1794, the Finneys moved to Hanover, from Hanover to what is called today now Kirkland, New York. And back then, there was just Indians everywhere. There was the Huron and the Mohawk, the Seneca, the Delaware, the Iroquois, and that's pretty much what, who inhabited that area. And the frontiersmen, they built little farms and they settled on the farm, and they were the first homeschoolers. See, homeschooling is not really a new idea. It's just we're going back to our roots. So Charles Finney was homeschooled. But he was a very intelligent, bright young man. Grew to be six foot two. Was a strapping country boy from upstate New York. The way they would educate is they would have traveling teachers that would come and actually live on the farm just kind of catch you up on your lessons. So he would have the teachers come, but nobody was allowed to talk about God. So uh, later he's, he was schooled in Hamilton Oneida Academy in Clinton. And this actually was a school that started for the Indians, and they didn't have uh, too good of a turnout, so it became actually a, a school of higher education. Uh, so he learned in that school classical education. They found out he was had an excellent voice. He was a good singer, and he was an excellent cello player. In 1812, he joined the Navy. And it was then, because he was a humanist, you see. Humanists believe 
that whatever you are, it's by your own design and by your own doing. If you make something out of yourself, you did it on yourself. You chose to make something good out of your life. They believe that ultimately everybody has goodness in them. And that uh, if you're just a good person, then, then you are what would be equivalent to a righteous person. They just believe in a human's goodness. You're good because you're a good person. And so he was in uh, San Diego, or is either San Francisco, I forget now. And he was approached by a prostitute. And he's standing there and he can't, for the life of him, understand what she's trying to sell him. Finally, it occurs to him what this woman is suggesting. And he was so overcome with shame for her that he began to weep. He couldn't believe that a young lady would do something that unthinkable, and especially for something as temporal and meaningless as money. And he began to weep for her. Then she was overcome with shame and began to weep and ran from his presence. But it was at that point that he realized everybody is not good. That there's some evil people in this world. In the year 1818, he decided that he was going to go into law. Now, back then, you didn't have schools to go to to prepare you for the bar exam. You just kind of trained yourself and taught yourself. So as he began to study to take his bar exam, he realized that uh, a lot of the things that he was reading were quotes from the Bible. And he said, there's no way that he could pass his bar exam without going and getting a Bible and reading, particularly the subject of the book of Romans. And so he got a Bible and he began to read the Bible for himself and it began to touch his heart. So the, for the first time he attended church. And as he attended the church there, uh, the pastor found out that he was an excellent cello player. And he was very good at music, so they hired him, this atheist, to be the master of music. You have to wonder, how many churches today have people leading their worship that don't even know God? Are you with me, church? How can you take somebody somewhere you've never been yourself? I thank God we've got a worship team that knows the Lord. Amen? And they can take us where they've been themselves. And so, there was this young lady that she saw him and she decided, I'm going to marry the master of music. And so she began to pray for the soul of Charles Finney. Now, he's watching the pastor as he's teaching these children on the subject of election. Teaching them that you're predestined either to go to heaven or you're predestined to go to hell. You have no choice in the matter. And so he began to argue with the pastor because he had studied the book of Romans. And he knew that we are people of free will. That if you choose to serve God, that nothing, no power on earth is going to prevent you from doing that. So he began to argue with him because he was concerned about the souls of these young people. And on October the 27th, 1821, on the floor of his house with nothing but his Bible in his hand, he said, Lord, what about my soul? And in his memoirs it says this, He heard as if it were an audible voice of God saying, Will you be saved now? And Charles Finney said, Yes, Lord. He wrote, that he received the witness of his own personal salvation in his, it was in his law office. He went into the woods and knelt down at an old log where he writes, 
I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. Waves of electricity going through and through and through me like waves of liquid love. I can hardly express the love that was shared abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy, and from that love I bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart and cried, Lord, if I shall, I shall die if these waves continue. I can't bear it anymore. Isn't that incredible? Man, I got saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Just like that. He goes on to say, I have received a... Re oh, he went back to his law office. And he's, he's getting ready to try a case for a man. He goes in. He takes the man. He introduces him to another lawyer. said, this is your new attorney. And the guy was irate. He said, what do you mean we're getting ready to go into court? He said, and this is what he said. He said, I have received a retainer from God, the God of heaven. Henceforth, I shall try the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. He closed his law books. He walked out of his law office and he never practiced law again. He called all the teenagers of the church together and revival broke out among the teenagers of a Presbyterian church. And they began to get saved. When the elders of the church found out about it, they called him before the board of the elders and three of the elders got saved. He went back, called all of his extended family together, told them what God had done in his life, and revival broke out among his family and his family got saved. His first pastorate, He's preaching. He said, how many will stand with me? Nobody stood. He said, how many will remain seated and accept hell and damnation? This is the way he preached now. These are the aspects that marked his ministry. He would give an invitation. If nobody came the next night, because he preached revivals the next night, he didn't give an invitation. The next night he came in, the pastor said, are you going to give an invitation? He said, no, not tonight. He got it when he got through preaching. He said, to hell with all of you, and walked out of the church. The pastor said, tomorrow nobody will come back. He said, tomorrow the place will be packed. When he got there, there was standing room outside the door. Only people were screaming and begging, please give us another chance to be saved. During his meetings, one woman fell into a trance for 16 hours until she arose singing the praises of God. A man in Pennsylvania pointed a dueling pistol at Finney. He dropped the pistol and yelled out loud, Help me! Help me! I'm sinking into hell. In Evans Mill, New York, a German-speaking church, one of the largest churches on the frontier, it seated 3,000 people. Finney would preach using the interpreter. He preached out of Hebrews chapter 12, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. By the third night... He, by the third service, he was preaching three services a day in a church that seats 3,000 people, and there was standing room only in all three services. This is back in the 1700s, folks. In Antwerp, New York, it was so corrupt that the key to the church was kept by the local tavern owner, who refused to open the church because Finney was in town. If everybody gets saved, the tavern's going to close down. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm not opening that church, man. Finney's going to get everybody here saved. I'm going to go out of business. This is what he wrote in his memoirs. He said, the Lord let me loose upon them. <laughs> How do you think about preaching? He let me loose upon them, he said. In a wonderful manner. It seemed that I could either rain heaven or hell, hell or rivers of grace. A man came to Antwerp and asked Finney if he would come to Sodom, New York. How would you like to live in Sodom, 
New York. Then he went and preached in the streets. And then he wrote, if I would have a sword, if I had had a sword in each hand, I could not have dropped them any faster. They fell unconscious in the street and rose, crying out for their souls, and revival broke out in Sodom. Now, folks, we, we talk about them. We'll go on a minute. We, talk, we hear him talking about people falling out. Now, I've witnessed that a few times. I've seen people fall out under what we call under the power of the Spirit. You know, people say, well, they're holy rollers or they're rolling in the floor. Well, I haven't seen people rolling in the floor, but I have seen people fall out under the Spirit. That's never happened to me. I did go to a service one time. I was like, God, why does this happen to everybody else? I have never felt anything like that. God, I want to feel that. And the guy's praying for me. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's because I just don't yield to it. So I just fell back like that. And the guy called me, and I'm laying on the floor. I'm like, Bernie, you just, you're stupid. That wasn't God. Get up off the floor. So I got up, and I was like, well, I don't know. But I've seen it, and I don't believe it was fake. You know, when, when they came to arrest Jesus, remember that? And they asked her, are you him? And he said, I am he. Remember that? Well, when Moses saw the burning bush, remember he said, who do I say sent me? And the voice in the bush said, tell them the I am has sent you. For I am the I am that I am. And tell them I am has sent you. And when Jesus made that statement, Jesus being God in the flesh, when he made that statement, I am he. The Bible says that they all fell to the ground like dead men. See, I know this is biblical. Because I believe in, Pastor Joe preached on one Sunday about the kabod, the power of the glory of God. And there, was, there, must, there had to have been just a flash of His glory. And when the glory of God comes upon frail human flesh, folks, sometimes it is so powerful that people just can't stand. There's been many revivals marked with this. It's how the Quakers actually got their name. They would fall out under the power of the Spirit and quake under the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't fake, folks. I mean, it was... Well, anyway, where was I? He went to Sodom. He said that they, they, they fell out in revival, unconscious in the street, and rose crying. At the height of the revival, he married the girl that had prayed for his soul. So, buddy, she had her, she had put the mark on him, and he was a done deal, brother. <laughs> he married her, and two days later, he went to Brownsville, New York, for a one-week revival. And he was gone for four months. Revival broke out. He's like, baby, I'm sorry, but I'll be back when I get back. You know, so four months later, he went back. In DeCamp, New York, he wrote, as I began to preach, I was aware that there was Methodist in the community. When two people fell out in the spirit, I, of course, assumed that they were Methodist. Now, that should strike you funny. It strikes me a little bit funny. When he discovered that they were Presbyterians, he was shocked by the power of God. Because back in the day, uh, believe it or not, Presbyterians were the modern-day Pentecostals. Not too many years ago. I mean, not Presbyterians, but Methodists. The Methodists, were, they were like Pentecostal folks, man. I mean, the power of God would move in their services, and they would be a powerful outpouring of the Spirit, and things would manifest. In the summer of 1825, the power of the Spirit was so powerful that he could not even preach He would stand and open his Bible and people would fall on the floor and cry for salvation. He said over and over again, God kept giving me one phrase. 
Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the power of God would just come into the room and people would fall down and say, I want to be saved today. And cry out for salvation. Now when the anointing comes, there's always followed by opposition. In 1826, opposition was fierce. Usually by ministers of the gospel. <laughs> and particularly by those in his own denomination. He was accused of many things, some which are true. He was accused of using a seeker's room. You know what a seeker's room is? It's like you're up coming for prayer and you don't really get an answer. And they would take you to a room and say, you stay here and pray until God comes and, and answers your prayer. And so they would go and seek God. And isn't that a horrible thing to do? He's accused of using bills to advertise a religious meeting. How dare he do such a thing? He was accused of calling other ministers' names. That was not true. He was accused of holding meetings in total darkness and planting people that would scream out and fall onto the floor. That was also a lie. He was accused of holding meetings so long that people were fatigued and the power of resistance was broken. That was a lie. Only I do that. <laughs> it's like, I'll do anything, pastor. Just say amen. <laughs> amen. Lyman Beecher was the pastor of the largest church in Boston, Massachusetts. He said, if he comes to Massachusetts, I will fight him at the state line. If he comes to Boston, I will fight him at the city limits. If he comes to my church, I will fight him on the doorsteps. And if he comes to the pulpit, I will fight him in my pulpit. See, Charles Finney wasn't real popular among the other pastors. I guess maybe look made him look bad or I don't know, something. In Stevenstown, New York, the pastor was an open drunk... He was carrying on an open affair. Finney denounced him from the pulpit. The pastor responded by denouncing Charles Finney. Finney went into the pulpit the next day and said, He has not opposed me, but God. Let God deal with him. The pastor died in his sleep that night, and revival broke out in Stevenstown and lasted for five years. In 1829, Finney was finally summoned from the frontier to the big city of Philadelphia. And the power of God was summoned with him. He preached, there is one mediator between God and man. They returned and demanded that he preach the same sermon seven nights in a row. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, people walked out of the meeting. One man walked out of Finney's meeting and cried loudly, proclaiming to everyone in the street, I will not yield to that man Finney, neither to any man, neither to God. At which he slipped off the curb and broke his neck. The people went back and pleaded with Finney to give them another chance. It became his practice that when revival did not break out, that he would pray for opposition. A town in northern Pennsylvania, the mayor urged Christians of every denomination not to attend. The report of it was carried to Finney, who prayed aloud that God would convert the mayor or remove him. As Finney prayed, the mayor dropped dead in his office, and revival broke out in northern Pennsylvania. Men from Rochester, New York, came to Finney and asked him if he would come to Rochester. The account of that conversation is recorded in one of the, many, uh, one of the men's journals. Finney asked, tell me sincerely, what is the outlook for revival of religion in Rochester, New York? The answer is, sir... We will be honest with you. The prospect of revival in Rochester is dark. Wickedness abounds. Dance halls and saloons are open on every corner. 
Prostitution is at an all-time high. Moral life is at an all-time low. The pastors are backslidden. The churches are empty. Feeney jumped to his feet and said, that is definitely the place for me. In the next three months, there were 10,000 registered converts in Rochester, New York in 1829. 10,000. He was invited to come preach at Union College. On the way, a petition came from uh, Urban, Auburn, New York, that they earnestly prayed for a great revival. The students from Union College arrived in wagons, and the entire college campus moved to another town so that they could seek God at Finney's feet. At the end of the year, 1829, he received a letter from Lyman Beecher, the one who said that he would fight him at the state line, at the city limits sign, at the doorsteps of his church, and on his pulpit. But this time he invited him to preach in his church. And revival began to break out there so that they closed every church in Boston, New York, because nobody attended. They all came to Lyman Beecher's church. Now, folks, the reason I point that out to you, if I were going to pick out a man that God would simultaneously save and fill with the Holy Ghost and bring a worldwide revival, I would not pick an antagonistic humanist who was raised by an atheist. I would have misdiagnosed that. Amen? That's not somebody I would have picked. But God can save whomever He chooses, folks. And we need to get a hold of this. When we try to see people and measure them up and size them up and say there's no hope for them, God can never use them, we don't know what we're talking about. And we're judging people when we should not. Christians sometimes look at people like they are a valley of dry bones, like there's no hope for them. It's a good thing God gave Ezekiel that vision, because if He had given me that vision, and probably you too, right? And I walked up, because I've seen some dry bones before. You ever been out and you find an old, where somebody's drug an old dead cow off a farmer or something, and bones are dry, man. I mean, this thing, you pick it up, and the dust is falling off of it dry. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever found something like that? Old dry bones. Now imagine a valley full of that and God asks you, can these bones live? I would have given the Cy Robinson answer. No. Uh-uh. No way, Jack. <laughs> Everybody knows who Cy Robinson is, don't you? Uncle Cy? Oh, you got to watch Duck Dynasty. You'll know what I'm talking about. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> no way, Jack. I would have misdiagnosed that. A lot of times we do that, folks. We look at people like they're a valley of dry bones. No hope for them. Women that's in an abusive relationship. They look at their husband. All he does is cuss at them, criticize them, cut them down. You say, there's no hope. Woman that's rebellious, backslidden, wife. Children that just walked away from the faith that their parents has raised them and taught them. Sometimes we wonder, will they ever return? Family members, a brother, sister, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, close friend. I go to the thrift store sometimes. Everybody likes to shop at a thrift store. I got a picture of a guy. I'll show it to you sometime. I've seen that guy there a bunch of times. He wears a bonnet, got all kind of little beads around it. He wears all kind of necklaces and a miniskirt up to about right here. 
He's got anklets around things, chains around his knees and the anklets, and he wears high heel shoes, earrings. Now, folks, I look at that guy and I'm thinking, dead bones. Will they live? Uh uh. Right? God can save any dry bone, folks. He can save any dry bones. A lot of so people go up and say, can I have my picture made with you? And I understand he's really a nice guy. His wife comes with him. She dresses like he does. I mean, <laughs> I don't get it. But, but folks, we need to know there is hope with God. There's hope with God. And God's instruction to Ezekiel is exactly the same instruction that he gives us. So don't you stay with me. I'm going to give you five things that you need to do if you're going to do what God told Ezekiel to do. And he's telling you to do this morning. Number one, you need to see the condition of the world that we live in. In verse 2, he said, And he caused him to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. Folks, we live in a spiritually dead society. People are dead. And they don't know it. They're walking dry bones. And they don't know it. Because you see, they're like Charles Finney. They're good people. But folks, good people are dead people. Because only godly people really live. That doesn't mean that when you come to Christ, you're better than somebody else or holier than thou. Folks, I've got so much going on in my life that I have to work through. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Man, I've got all kinds of junk in my life. Who am I to stand and judge somebody else? I've got no right to judge anybody. I'm not saying that I am godly because I'm better than you. I'm only godly because Jesus Christ breathed life into my dead bones. And God wants to breathe life into every person's dead bones. Because they think because I'm good, I'm going to be alright. But they're dead. And we need to see the condition of the world. Folks, there's some good people out there that lives better lives than some Christians do. And they look at Christians and profess Christians like, what, I want to be like you. I don't do what you do. A lot of humans are like that. They're good people. By the world's standards. But the Bible says there is those good, there, there are no good people. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this, But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquity, like the wind, has taken us away. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way is death. People that think good principles, high morals, being kind and thoughtful to other people, make them good. But Paul says, There is none that does good. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Folks, until we meet Jesus, we're dead. And we need to understand that's the condition of the world. We're dead. Ezekiel could not intercede for Israel until God showed him the condition of the people. Good people or dead people. Without the breath of God, you will never really live. The second thing you need to know is you must believe God is the God of hopeless causes. 
Verse 3, he said, Son of man, can these bones live? And he answered, O Lord God, you know. It wasn't Ezekiel's idea. It was God's idea. And we can't judge people by just looking at them. Any dry bone can live, and we need to understand. Folks, God can take somebody like Charles Finney and bring revival to the whole world, a humanist, an atheist. At one of the, at one of the honor-bound meetings, I, I had to come home early, but the pastor told a story about his women's group. He sent them out and said, I want six. I think it was, if I'm getting the numbers wrong, guys, you forgive me. Because the guys came back and told me about this. He said, I want six prostitutes. And the ladies in the church looked at him like, you want what? He said, I want six prostitutes. I want you to go out, find out whatever they charge. I want you to pay them and bring them to the church. They said, all right, pastor. So they went out and each one of them, they took their money and they paid the prostitute what she wanted and brought them to the church. So the pastor's standing there, and here comes these ladies, and they brought the pastor of the prostitutes. And they said, well, what do, you, what do you want us to do? He said, I want you to follow me. And he goes in, and he's got a table set. And I mean, he rolled out the finest, the finest china, the finest everything. And he took them in, and he set them down. And he had the ladies that went and got them serve them. And he said, we just wanted to bring you in and treat you like a lady. And out of that, one of those women, several of them came to the Lord, but one of them went on to be the head of his women's ministry. Folks, you can misdiagnose people. We can size them up and think God can never use them and have no idea the power of God that wants to be released in their life if we will just believe that God is the God of hopeless causes. God can save any dry bones, folks. We need to believe that. John chapter 7 and verse 37 says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. John 3.16 said, Whosoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 22.17 says, The Spirit of the bride says, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. How many of you know God is a God of hopeless causes? Amen? The third thing that you need to do is speak to them bones. Everybody say, speak to them bones. Speak to them bones. Verse 4, he said, and again, he said, prophesy to these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Romans 10, he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear Without a preacher. He told Ezekiel to prophesy. The word prophesy means to proclaim. Go out and proclaim. Preach the gospel, folks. Preach the gospel. At all times. And when necessary, use words. That's a quote of another famous evangelist. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary to use words. The greatest sermon you're ever going to preach is the one that you live. So I'm not telling you to go out and preach one thing and live something else. We need to live what we preach. Because the world's looking at you. They hear you say you're a Christian, but they see you do something else. Well, you just preach a, a message louder than the one you're speaking. All right? Amen? 
Paul said that you are an epistle written in the hearts known and read by all men. But we need to go out and tell the good news to people that Jesus came to save and He wants to save you. Number four, call upon the Spirit to do what you cannot do. Folks, praying breaks the stronghold of death. Ezekiel 38 verse 9, he says, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Folks, you can preach the word, you can show them the word, you can live the word in front of them. But until Jesus Christ touches their soul, they will not live. How many of you pray for the people you witness to? Pray for the people that you witness to. Folks, when you pray, you I said it when we prayed over our prayer request. You release something in the Spirit. You remember Daniel? He prayed for his nation. And he said, God, not because they're righteous, but because of your mercy. And on the 21st day, the angel came and said, Daniel, I heard your prayer the first day you prayed. But the prince of Persia withstood me. And when I leave, I must battle the prince of Grisha. What he's talking about is in the realm of the Spirit, the area that we can't see. Folks, there is a war going on over CVAG right now. There's a war going on. There is battle going on in the heavens. And when we pray, we are unleashing things in the Spirit. He was saying, I was fighting a demonic principality, a power, a demon. I was fighting him, trying to get to you with the answer to your prayer. Twenty-one days I battled with that Spirit. As you pray, day after day after day. And finally, after twenty-one days of battle, he said, I finally got through. Why? Because of your prayer. Folks, we can't just utter a little God bless them prayer and think that's going to get it done. We have got to intercede for those whom we love and we care about. And as we do that, we need to know that we're releasing things in the Spirit. Even in the natural realm. Folks, when, when you obey God, my fifth point, when you obey God, and you obey His command, Great things will happen. How many of you believe that? Do you really believe that? When you obey God's commands, great things will happen. Verse 10, he said, So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. God will do miracles when we do what he has commanded. Well, what did he command us to do? The last thing he told us to do, Matthew 28, 18 and 19, he said, All power has been given unto me, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, you go, you go and preach the gospel. You make disciples of them, he said. You go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And I'll be with you. Folks, when we step out in obedience to that command, and we go even when we go afraid, when we go, when we don't have confidence, when we go, we say, I don't know how to do this. Just do what he said to do. Miraculous things will happen. It'll happen in the Spirit. Folks, the Word of God is quick and powerful. It does things in the souls of men that nothing else can do. 
And it will transform people from one thing to another. People like Bones, that mean man, Charles Finney, this former prostitute. He will, it will break things in the Spirit. And miraculous things can happen in the Spirit. Seeing a person transformed by the power of God is a miracle, folks. It's a miracle. Not only that, God will do things in the natural realm. In closing, I'm going to read this story to you. It's a story that was submitted by a man named C. Scott Jehan. Story about a lady who had a child. This child was born. I, I, I didn't. I don't know exactly all the details. If it was brain dead or what, but it was unconscious. It was, it was lifeless, but still breathing. And they're gathered around this child in the hospital room. And this lady writes about that account, and this is what she said. If you have ever clung to a child near death, you know the dramatic fork in the road. You either give in almost totally to the despair, the fear, and the hopelessness, knowing that death is imminent, realizing no miracle cure is coming, and you are fighting a losing battle. Or, you believe that there is a God over all things. He has all authority. You believe He wants good things for your children. You believe that some things that transpire here in this awful earthly plane are not His will. Because He is a good God. You believe He has a good plan for man and a good will. You believe if you could just have an audience with this good God and make your case that He, is, he who is able will change the course of your situation and your child will rise from the bed of sickness and live. Lying on a cot at the midnight hour in Arkansas Children's Hospital on Thursday, May the 14th, 1987, that's when I decided that was the character of the God I served. In-laws around me jibber-jabbering sick platitudes let us hold hands and give God thanks for giving us little Clinton for seven days. As we now give him back to God, God needs another little angel. I want you to know I didn't hold hands and stand in any family circle of prayer. I was too busy doing battle with Satan. Then coming back to the throne room and giving the Father an operation report. I had no pride. If I lost the battle, I already had my speech prepared. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You did not do this. But even if you slay me, yet will I serve you. I get confused. I get discouraged. But you are my God. There is no other. I worship you today in the hour of my loss and grief in Jesus' name. But then at 3.30 a.m. on Friday, May the 15th, 1987, I stood with the Holy Spirit beside me, surrounded by doubters and unbelievers. Not a single person of faith. Everyone giving me the most pathetic look I had ever seen in my life as I demanded a bottle of formula so I could feed my yet unconscious newborn son as the Holy Spirit had instructed me to do. It was a lot of trouble, but the nurse procured one for me. 
It was like a dying person's final request granted. And when the nipple touched Clinton's lips, he opened his eyes and just about sucked the bottle inside out. And he drank two and a half of them. I didn't say, I told you so. I said, he told me so. Will you stand with me, please? Church, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void. It will accomplish that which I please. And it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God will do miracles if we obey His command. He did it in the life of Ezekiel. He did it in the life of Charles Finney. He did it in the life of this mother of this child. And folks, He will do it in your life too. God does miracles. God can soften the hardest heart. Folks, He can save any dry bones. God can give life to anyone. And if you're here today and you have been misdiagnosed, people have looked at you and thought, well, there's no hope for you. You're unreachable. That's not true. Because God can reach anybody. And I believe that God is touching the hearts of people in this sanctuary today. And telling you there's hope for you. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. God wants to breathe life into every person. He'll breathe life into you. A lot of people are like Charles Finney. They just think goodness is going to make them, being good is going to make them right. That was 192 years ago. But on October the 27th, in 1821, uh, he knelt down on the floor and said, God, what about my soul? I would that every person that I know, every person that I can witness to, would ask that question. God, what about my soul? And they would hear as if it's the audible voice of God saying, Will you be saved now? Because God is asking every person that question. He says, call upon the Lord while he may be found. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable day of the Lord. So I'm going to ask you if you would just to bow your heads for a minute. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. You've kind of worked around the fringes. You've... Maybe you've been around it most of your life, but you've never really made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Folks, God sent me here today to preach a message to you about dead bones living. And I want you to know this morning that your life can just radically change by the power of God. If you will just listen to the question, the Holy Spirit is asking you, will you be saved now? What will you say to Him? 
If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to ask you just to step out from wherever you're standing and make your way to the altar and just kneel down before God at this altar and say, Lord, I'd like to be saved today. And I'm just going to believe that God is going to transform the whole of your life and make you a new creation. Christian, today today God has shown us the condition of the world. There's nobody that's good. Good people are still dead people. But they can't hear that without a preacher. God has given us a command to go. When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? Dr. Rutland tells a story about being in a service. And he said, how many of you have led at least a hundred people to Christ? Nobody raised their hands. How many of you have led 50 people to Christ? No one raised their hand. How many of you have led 20 people to Christ? No one raised their hand. How many has led 10 people to Christ? Just 10. No one raised their hand. How many has led a single person to Christ? A few hands went up. There was a woman standing there 78 years old. And she was so ashamed that she had been a Christian her whole life. And had never led a single person to Christ. The next night of the revival, she came walking in. Holding the hand of a little boy with dirty feet and a dirty face and dirty hands. And that night, that little 14-year-old boy from the El Paso trailer park gave his heart to Christ. She said, I drove all over El Paso looking for somebody that I could bring to this revival tonight. And this is the only person that I could find. The next night she brought his whole family and the whole family came to Christ. She said, I was so ashamed that I was 78 years old and I had never led anybody to Christ. God commanded us to go, church, and preach the gospel. Just go tell people the good news about Jesus, what He did in your life and what He wants to do in their life. So I'm going to ask you this morning. Can you make a commitment to obey God's command? Will you be the woman that demands milk to give to a dying baby? Will you be like the woman that will go and ride all over Central Virginia and find somebody that will come at least and sit under the gospel and hear the good news about Jesus Christ? Will you prophesy to dead bones this morning? Folks, as we close this morning, I believe we need to take a minute and bring these things to the altar and get before God. Say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And make a commitment to Jesus Christ this morning. 
I don't believe God put this message in my heart in vain. So I challenge you this morning. Will you make a commitment to Christ? Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvaag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.